With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. They all count. All the years count. You're as good as your last race in this business. So, of course, we continue to put effort in and push. The pain is worth the gain. Hello and welcome to Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. Formula One's a bit Red Bull-tastic at the moment, isn't it? We're in the lay week between two races at the Red Bull ring, the first of which was won in emphatic style by Max Verstappen in a Red Bull. So now seems an apposite moment to invite Red Bull Racing boss Christian Horner onto the show to discuss the team's recent turnaround in fortunes. Or should I say invite him back onto the show because he first came on in the summer of 2018. Back then, we chatted in his garden in Oxfordshire. This time, we caught up in the paddock at the Red Bull Ring on the eve of last weekend's Styrian Grand Prix. And as you're about to hear, Christian and his team are in a very good place, and they're incredibly bullish about the future. After eight races, they lead the Constructors' Championship by 40 points and Verstappen the drivers by 18, and they've just won four consecutive races for the first time since 2013. Mercedes even admitted last weekend that for the first time in the turbo hybrid era, they no longer have the fastest car in Formula One. Christian and I talk about it all, the season so far, the drivers, the future with Red Bull powertrains, and to give their current success some context, we also talk about the team's journey to this moment. What's changed to make them this good and why? Christian, as ever, is in good form and he has a lot to say. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Christian, it's great to have you back on the show. Would you believe it? There have been 130 episodes since you last came on in 2018. That's amazing. Well, it's, it's nice to be back 130 episodes later. <laughs> so um, lots, happen lots happened since then. Well, actually, before we move on, do you remember it was the start of the summer break 2018 yeah. and the night before yeah. i think daniel ricardo had phoned you and said no more thanks yeah it was all a bit bizarre i remember you come round. i said come around beginning of the summer holidays it'll be nice and quiet daniel had resigned the night before so i got the world and his dog ringing me the next day i got flavio call while you were there you know, pitching for Fernando. I think we can talk about this now. Flavio uh, called. I think Carlos Sainz I think Senior Ross, called. Ross Braun called, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. uh, he was pitching as well, not to get a drive. Looking at your wife, saying, "Are we ever actually going to get this thing started?" And then, and then a 1904, um, uh, you, you know, London to Brighton run car turned up to have a little test drive in as well. So yeah, it was all it was all yeah. going on. Uh, any anything you want to announce? Actually, nothing. Before we, before nothing. We, no no dramas. No, nothing I, as big as that. Nothing as big as nothing as big as that. No, no, no. Well, a lot has happened on track since then, Christian. Yeah, and off track. Yeah, on and off. Lot, lots has happened since. But yeah, it has. Yeah, since it's been then, a busy yeah. three years yeah. for all of us, isn't it? Really. But um, you guys are genuinely competitive now. How does it feel 
to be a genuine challenger again? Because it's been a while. It has been a while. But do you know what? This is what we've been working for. And to go to races knowing that you've got a chance of winning, he just puts petrol in everybody's tank. And I think that, you know, the whole factory, the whole team is fully motivated. And, you know, loving this competition, you know, let's see where it ends up. But, to, you know, Mercedes have been, let's not forget, they've won everything the last seven years and it's been seven long years and I think so to get ourselves back into a competitive position to be able to be giving the drivers a competitive car particularly with a pandemic of the last 18 months and so on yeah it, it's fantastic I think it's good for us it's good for the sport and uh, I hope it goes all the way to the wire Max Verstappen wins the Styrian Grand Prix that was absolutely clinical Max that's a great great drive keep, uh, keep turning that screw well done how much have you missed this feeling? I mean, it's so long ago, I can't remember what it felt like the last time. But, you know, we went through an incredibly successful patch for, for four years, which at the time everybody was saying, oh, you guys are dominating everything and it's boring. And you remember the two of those world championships went to the final race against Fernando in 2010 and in 2012. You know, and we won it at the, at the last race. What we've seen since then has been not domination, it's been annihilation. Um, and we've, we've won races in pretty much every year since, but they've had to be opportunistic wins at circuits that have suited us or, or through clever strategy or thinking on our feet. But to put a sustained campaign together, which just puts a lot of wind in your sails. And I think that, yeah, we've missed that winning feeling. You can feel it in the team. You know, there's a lot of people here that were there then, but there's also quite a few that weren't. So they haven't experienced this you know this before but uh you, you don't forget how to win is this the best version of red bull racing that there's ever been so difficult to compare i mean we were pretty polished through those world championship winning years but i think as a team you're always evolving things are always getting better you know you look at the speed of pit stops you look at you know all aspects of the way that we operate now and everything just takes a a step forward so i think you know, we've got a great group of people. We've got two great drivers. And, uh, you know, we've got an engine partner that's, that's done, a, done a fantastic job this year as well. And some great technical partners. And it's the combination of all those things, you know, coming together. And it's just evolution. Have you ever had a driver pairing that's as harmonious as the one that you have now? DC and, and uh, Mark, they were reasonably harmonious. Mark and Sebastian certainly weren't harmonious. Daniel and Max were, for the large part of it, very good. You know, they, they, they raced hard, but there was a respect between each other. And really, since Daniel's left, obviously, we had, you know, drivers coming very young. And, you know, Max was running solo. And it's only really since Checo has now arrived that, you know, he's, he's a great team player. And, you know, he was out at the end of last year. He, he wouldn't would have been unlikely to find a seat, certainly not a competitive seat. So I think he's enormously grateful for this opportunity, grabbing it with both hands. And, you know, he's a really rounded guy, a lot of experience, and he's, he's playing the team role fantastically well. What about Honda? Have you ever had such a close relationship with an engine partner? We haven't. And I have to say, you know, the relationship with Honda has been absolutely sensational. We've, you know, we've enjoyed every minute of it. They're so committed it's such a wonderful company to work with. The engineering quality, the passion, the commitment, 
the desire, the honor, the dedication that they put into this product is unlike I've ever seen before. And of course, once you've experienced that, I mean, we're dreadfully sorry that they're going to be, be leaving us at the end of the year and leaving the, the sport. Once you've experienced that, it's very difficult to then go back to being a, you know, a standard customer. So, um, you know, that was a large part of the reason but behind saying, no, no, we, you know, we need to bring this under our own control now. How's the current success going down in Tokyo? Do you think there's a few regrets? I think they're loving it. I think Do you think they're regretting pulling out? They've made their decision. They're withdrawing officially at the end of the year. And it's a great, great shame because, you know, we'd have loved them to stay longer. We're just about to go under a, uh, a freeze for the next three years. So costs are far more controlled. You know, they've worked very hard to get themselves into a competitive position. But, uh, you know, certainly next year we're, we're aiming to retain some form of relationship. Can you elaborate a bit on that? Are you still going to have access to Sakura in Japan and some of well, the engineers? Obviously, or? I'm not going to go into the details of the discussions, but right. we're aiming to have a, you know, a softer landing as we can. As it's an enormous challenge to start from scratch as an engine builder. Well, look, why don't we talk powertrains then? Sure. I was going to come on to it later. But first up, when Honda pulled out, did you explore the current power unit suppliers? Yeah, I mean, the most natural thing was to have a discussion, you know, with the existing suppliers. And um, how do they go? Mercedes was a very short conversation. And, uh, you know, Toto obviously wasn't particularly keen on that one. In fact, Renault, their aspirations of a team didn't include supplying a team like Red Bull. And probably the most willing was Ferrari. And, uh, you know, we had some exploratory discussions but to be a customer so to have to accept all the integration particularly with the new regulations that are coming it would be a massive hard pill to swallow so you know that's when we started to explore the possibility okay how do we take on this challenge in a red bull manner and you know see if we can put a deal together with honda in the you know for the seeable future and the freeze was fundamental to that because we wouldn't have the capacity to develop an engine, you know, to take that step. And it's a big step and it's a bold step to become, uh, you know, take control of our own destiny as an engine supplier and bring the whole lot under one roof in, in Milton Keynes that would make us the only team other than Ferrari to have the whole lot within one facility. How difficult a sell was that to Dietrich Mateschitz? You know, in terms of a sell, I think he reached that conclusion himself that, we had no choice and Helmut was obviously very supportive and, and pushing hard for it. And it was absolutely the right, you know, call. It was, it was in reality for us to remain in a competitive position. It was the only call. Yeah. Engines up until this relationship with Honda have been, they've always been an Achilles heel to a, uh, to a degree. It's the one element that you haven't had control over. And I think taking control of your own destiny is a ballsy thing to do. And some people, I'm sure up and down the pit lane, said that those guys are completely nuts because they have no idea what they're taking on. But, yeah, I'm a great believer in this business. It's a, it's a people sport. And it's about getting the right people, giving them the right tools to do the job, empowering them. Yeah, it's a, it's a competition at the end of the day. What would you say is the biggest challenge in setting up a startup company in Formula One? 
I think, first of all, you've got to integrate it with what you've got as well. So you don't want to just create a completely new independent company. Otherwise, you may as well go to a third party supplier. So the whole purpose of this was to utilize the synergies and the skill set and the synergies between whether it's machine shops, engineers, software, simulation, um, you know, groups that you expand and you build upon your existing structure. So it's fully embedded you know, within the process of the car. And that's a difficult thing to do, to bring a completely new entity and bolster your existing setup. But I think with the quality of people that we have, you know, we've managed to do that and we're, we're very much getting there. And with the cost cap, have you been able to move a lot of people over from the chassis side yeah. to, right? I mean, it's undoubtedly saved a lot of people's jobs because... Uh, you know, on the powertrain side there, the, the, we need FE specialists, we need simulation engineers, we need electronics designers. And without a shadow of a doubt, it has saved a significant amount of jobs that would have otherwise, unfortunately, at the end of this month, been um, needing to leave us. So I think that's a positive because our biggest asset at the end of the day is our people. And without them, we've got nothing. It's taken a huge amount to assemble this group of people. And so even though we have had to reshape and say goodbye to, and it's been really tough, um, saying goodbye to some individuals that have been with the team 25 years. The fact that we've managed to save you know, a significant number of skilled people to continue in Red Bull powertrains is, yeah, that feels good. How much of your time is dedicated to Red Bull powertrains at the minute? I think over the last nine months, a significant amount because yeah. it's about getting the right structure, it's about getting the right people and uh, integrating it fully. So it's, it's a big project and we're only, we're only at the beginning of the story. So there's a long, long way to go. Are there parallels to 2005 when you first walked in the door at Red Bull Racing in terms of what you were creating back then and what you're creating now at Powertrains? Well, not really, because when I walked in the door in 2005, at least there was a team there. You know, here we got nothing. Um, and, uh, you know, we're starting from scratch. The, the, the Red Bull have invested significantly in the, getting the right infrastructure in place, the right dynos, the right rigs, the right, you know, facilities. And, of course, you've got then have to have the right people to fill those facilities. So, you know, certainly in the earlier part of this year, it's about identifying, right, who are those people? Who do we need in our team? In a very similar way to what we did in the, with the chassis in the early days. But who even gave you that advice? How much of an expert are you in powertrains? I do know that it's a people business. So you do your, your research, you, you call Andy Cowell as your first call. <laughs> yeah, you know, he's taking on some different challenges in his life at this point in time, but it was obvious why he's achieved you know, what he has. And then it's a question of saying, okay, your Mercedes have produced the best engine for the last probably 15 years in Formula One, V8, V6. And, you know, how, how do we bring in that talent and who is that talent? So you do, do your research and you work out, okay, they're the people that I think we need. Can we see a day when Red Bull powertrains will be supplying other teams in the pit lane? And I'm not talking about Alpha Tower. I don't see why not, because, I mean, Red Bull will be the only independent manufacturer in Formula One. So we're not dictated to, to say that it's got to be run on orange juice or it's got to be a V6 or a V4 or whatever it is. It's about Formula One. It's about, it needs to sound right. It needs to 
generate the necessary horsepower. Yes, it has to deal with the environmental issues, but there's no prerequisite set down from an OEM to say, this is what the engine has to be. So I think it's been music to Stefano and, and Ross's ears that suddenly they're not beholden just on the OEMs and the manufacturers. Could the Christian Horner of 2005 taken on this project? It would have been too much at that point in time. But I think that, you know, I've got a great team around me and think that you know, we've got such strength and depth in the organisation that we're ready for this challenge. And I think it's an exciting challenge and one that's been been fully embraced. You know, Adrian's excited about it. Pierre Vache, uh, you know, gets to work side by side with the technical director of the powertrains and Ben Hodgkinson, um, who will be joining us. And it's uh, it, it's really exciting. And of course, we're going to inherit over 100 people from HRD UK. So the engines are operated out of Milton Keynes in the UK from Honda. And all those talented people that are here at the track running and operating these engines will transfer across um, to becoming Red Bull employees. Is Red Bull powertrains what you were looking for in the latter years with Renault? I think we'd always felt that the barrier to entry was just too high. But I think with where the regulations are going, it does make it longer term you know, the numbers being sensible. And I think without Honda's assistance, this would have never been possible if we weren't able to be able to use some of their technology and expertise. Um, in 2022, this would have been impossible. Let's take it back to the start of this journey, to 2005. Mm -hmm. Describe what the campus in Milton Keynes was like when you started at the <laughs> team. Well, I wouldn't call it campus. I call it two industrial units. And uh, they were very green. Everything was painted green. It was green carpet everywhere because it was Jaguar. It was a bit run down. And I remember there was a nice chaise lounge in the office that I think used to be Jackie Stewart's original office. A lot of sort of green shag pile carpet everywhere and some nasty looking furniture. But it's changed immeasurably. But of course, the original building was, you know, the Stewart Grand Prix building. And before that was even Paul Stewart Racing. So as the campus has gone through a transformation the last 15 years or so, as we've acquired more and more buildings, and it is a campus now. I mean, you drive into it and it's got a completely different feel. But the building, the original building has been named the Stuart Building. Is that a recent thing? It is a, a recent thing, named earlier this year. I'm hoping Jackie's not going to charge me a perpetual license for it or anything don't like be too that. sure. And, and when COVID you know, rules allow, you know, hopefully he'll come and open it for us officially. Um, we have a Lauda building, which is where the race team were, which was a building that Nicky Lauda negotiated and called Building 2. So that is the Lauda building. We have a Rint building, which is where the engines will be produced. And we also have a Vettel building, which is where our data centers are and, and so on, because that Sebastian was so obsessed with data, it felt only right to have a, uh, a Vettel building. Did you ever think about moving things away from Milton Keynes and creating your own factory somewhere near Silverstone? I think a long time ago, basically in 2005, 2006, we looked at going to a brownfield site and looking at Because I know something. Jaguar were thinking about that. Um, and we looked at their old plans and so on. But basically, we've just grown organically and, and, and just bought more and more industrial units on the estate to the point that we could then fence it off and call it a campus and 
and have a new drive in and 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 there's so much technology on there because we've got now we house Red Bull Racing, Red Bull Technology. We have Red Bull Advanced Technology working on projects like you know the Valkyrie and and other exciting projects it's it's into at the moment. Now we have Red Bull Powertrains as well. So there's so much going on, so much technology based on the campus. It's just full of innovation, which is fantastic. That Red Bull Racing of 2005, where would it be qualifying on the grid now? I would think it'd be just behind Haas. But uh, uh, yeah, it was, yeah, it's come a long, long way. But there's a lot of people that are still within the company that were there in those in those days. And even before that, you get a watch, you get, you get a nice tag hoyer, you know. So um, anybody that reaches 25 years, and there's quite a few of them. We've got about four or five that have done 25 years. Simon Adams that runs all our R&D, been there since, you know, a mechanic on a Formula 3 car for Paul Stewart Racing, mm. you know, all those years ago. For one David Coulthard. Gosh. Which brings me on to another point when we talk about the journey from mm. then to now. I wanted to ask you about the key hires that yep. you've made along the way. DC was one of the early employees, wasn't he? Yeah, I didn't hire DC. DC was already nominated as a driver by the time I got there. And it was like, thank God, I know, you know, DC. But by far the biggest, you know, obviously was Adrian. And, you know, Adrian's impact on the team has been, you know, immense. And, you know, we weren't ready for Adrian. When Adrian joined, I don't think he realised actually what he signed up to. But, you know, DC played an important role in attracting Adrian to come and join the team. And uh, that was a key moment because suddenly people then started to take us seriously. Then off the back of that, we were able to attract other key talent. It still remains with us today. People like, you know, Rob Marshall, uh, people like Jonathan Wheatley, uh, longstanding team members that have been with us from those early days there was an interesting battle if my memory's correct back in those days between red bull being the party team and you i think probably driving the no we're going to be a serious racing team how difficult was it for you to win that battle it, it wasn't really a battle because what you have to remember formula one in the sort of early noughties was full of oems and so when you came into the paddock it was toyota and bmw and mercedes and mclaren and and it was all very stiff. It was all very corporate, very driven by manufacturer influence. And when Red Bull came in, one thing Dietrich said to me very early on was that he wanted to do things differently. He wanted Red Bull to be different, not in its aspirations, but in the way that it presented itself. He wanted to see people having fun. He didn't want it taking itself too seriously. So suddenly we turned up at the, with the energy station. I remember it very vividly. Imola 2005, first European race, and we're parked next to McLaren. Did and you do that intentionally? No, I did think Bernie, Bernie, did I, Bernie probably did it. <laughs> Bernie had no idea what we, you know, the, who we were turning up with this sort of aluminium framed party house that played our music loud, said anybody could come in that they liked, you know, because you usually need about 15 passes to get into any of the other you know, motorhomes, which are the inner sanctum within the paddock. And we said, yeah, look, if you've got a pass to get in the paddock, you're welcome in here. And we used to do a party on a Thursday. We used to do a sunset thing on a Friday or Saturday night. The music would be loud. There'd be a DJ there. And it was all, it was all rock and roll. But, you know, in the paddock, people didn't know quite how to take it. I remember McLaren, I, I think they, 
they wrote several letters complaining about their neighbors. Noisy neighbors. <laughs> and uh, one of their employees, I remember coming out to have a, a look at you know, what the hell was this structure with all this noise coming out in Imola. And that was Adrian. And uh, so, it's a kind of, so that noise and that party atmosphere yeah. might have been one of totally, the contributing factors. Totally. It uh, produced some intrigue with him. So I invited him in, come and have a look. And he had a couple of drinks and, and he was one of the last to leave. And, you know, I think Adrian just, he, he felt like a kindred spirit. You know, he'd been with Leighton House in the early days. And I think he felt that there was a real vitality and an energy within the team that really appealed to him and an innocence in many respects. But behind that was this, there was still a drive to, you know, we're not just here to take part. It's we want to win, we'll, but we'll do it in a different way. But we definitely want to win. Was there a conscious effort, though, to steer away from being the party team? Turn down the music. Don't be quite so loud. Well, the music's just as loud now as it used to be. If you go in the garage, you know, we're a noisy neighbour. Um, but, you know, I think just as a team, we grew up a bit because you know, it got to a point where suddenly we were racing for world championships and, and, you know, we couldn't have a bunch of visitors jumping in and out the car on every garage tour. So, you know, you just evolve. And, and I think we just grew up during that period of time. And as our, the results come, so does, you know, the way that you operate, it changes slightly. How hard was it to keep Adrian when you were winning everything from 2010 to 2013? He had a few offers. Yeah, I mean, Adrian, you know, I think Ron Dennis thought that when Adrian joined up, us that Adrian had seen his best days and, you know, he was just going to sort of meander into retirement. But Adrian was fully fired up and I think those championship winning years were, were fantastic. And then, of course, we then came off the back of four consecutive world championships with and into the hybrid era with an engine that just stood no chance of winning for the foreseeable future. And I think that was a massive test of Adrian's motivation and of course ferrari came hunting made film star type offer and one of the things that really appealed to him was the ability to do his own road car there and i think one of the key things that we did at that point was say look why don't we do that here why don't we do a red bull design supercar here and it was a very short conversation he was like yeah okay off we set and no idea how we were going to do it who we were going to do it with, who was going to pay for it. But off we set. So he started coming up with a concept. And in the meantime, Andy Palmer, who had been at Infinity, and Nissan, who had been our title partner, he took up the role of CEO at Aston Martin. And I remember speaking to Andy saying, look, Adrian wants to do a road car. You've got a fantastic brand. We've got a fantastic designer. If we put the two together, maybe we can do something. What was originally going to be 25 cars rapidly went to... 150 cars. Now that car finally this year will be delivered to the first of the customers. When's the first Red Bull road car going to hit the road? You know, who knows? I mean, that's a serious now, question. Now, now, you, you can now do well, that. Now can't that you? the relationship with Aston has, has finalized in Formula One, it hasn't concluded on the, uh, you know, with advanced technology yet because there's still projects that are outstanding and ongoing. But of course, the next thing is to look at what is the next step in that journey you know having learned all those lessons with the valkyrie it'd be a great shame not to put them to use in something insane watch this space how motivated is adrian now super motivated you know he's got a sniff that we're in with a chance for this world championship and he's just like the adrian of 2010 11 12 13 he's probably the same adrian as as 99 1993 
96, you know. And he's got got some great people that he's working with. I think Pierre Vache on the technical team is doing a great job and that allows Adrian, you know, more freedom. We've got great strength and depth in the uh, aerodynamic team and across the design functions. And it's uh, everybody understands each other's roles. It's interesting that we're talking about this here in Austria because coming into the weekend, of course, Dan Fallows, your head of aero is now off to Aston Martin. Yep. So there's a lot of chat about technical structures. And is the structure the same with you now as it was when Adrian first arrived? Is he the sort of the person still at the top of the tree or is it a much flatter management structure on the technical well, he, he's side? He's our chief technical officer. And so he has the ability to get involved in whatever he chooses to do so. But then, of course, with hundreds of engineers, you have to have a more formal structure that Pierre Vache is our technical director, he heads that up. So the, the principal functions report into him, which will be very different to the Aston Martin structure where the technical director doesn't have the reports of the performance director and the engineering director. So, you know, Dan, in his function as technical director, I believe will have aerodynamics and a bit of chassis layout, whereas the technical director in, you know, Rebel Racing, for example, in Pierre's role, he has the responsibility of all of those functions. So every team is cut differently and of course every organization evolves and continues to evolve over time let's talk drivers next who's been the most important driver in red bull's journey there's been three i would say david in the early days because he for me was a you know he'd driven for the big teams he'd driven for williams he'd driven for mclaren's when he came to us he, you know he put in some um, fantastic performances but he was a, a great barometer and sounding board for me to bounce ideas off and just say how did this compare to what you're used to and so he was you know he played a key role in the early days of Red Bull Racing and is still an ambassador and involved in the team you know 17 years later. Do you still bounce ideas off Yeah, him? yeah he's you know he's got a lot of experience he's very good with the drivers he understands the driver's emotions and and hardships and what they have to go through so yeah he's he's a he's a great sounding board in terms of just dealing with drivers sebastian obviously was the was the next one with the success that he achieved and the level that he managed to you know to hit was was phenomenal when was he at his peak 2013 nine races wins in a row you've done it in style fantastic you're a four-time world champion Brilliant, brilliant drive. You joined the greats. Well done. Unbelievable, guys. We did it! Yes! Yes! What was it about that car? I think he just worked it out. I think he worked the tyre out. He worked out how to get the most out of corner entry, corner exit, particularly in the slow speed stuff. High speed, Mark got him covered. Yeah, Mark was braver in the high speed, but Seb was smarter in the low speed and just managed to work out these complicated Pirelli tyres and, and what the car needed. He was very smart at that and he applied himself incredibly well. And I think in the environment we gave him, he felt loved and, you know, he felt he got the backing of the team and we were able to get, get the most out of him. Before we move on from Vettel, two races I wanted to ask you about. Yep. Multi-21, Malaysia 2013. What's the backstory to that? Seb um, overtakes Mark. Mark's unhappy. Yeah. Seb wins the race. But what was the backstory? Well, the backstory to it, well, well, there was a bit of a backstory, was that we'd been hammered in Australia the race before. I think Q3 
Kimi had won the race in the Lotus and the Pirellis have been like cheese in the race that they, you had to look after them so cautiously. And so we were very concerned about burning out the tyres. And so therefore we had discussed that about not putting ourselves under pressure as a team, therefore not allowing the drivers to slug it out with each other and look after the car. It was race two, look after the car, bring them home. And what had happened was Seb had misjudged the crossover from wet to dry and come in too early, a lap too early, and Mark had got it spot on. And so track position had been reversed, but Seb had one new set of tyres left available to him at the end. So after the final pit stop, and I think it was a three-stop race, I mean, it was a busy old race, it was right, right, okay, hold stations. This is now about bringing it. We, we were running one, two, is just get the cars to the finish. We don't want to see a victory slip through our hands. But wind the clock back four months, back to Brazil, the decider of the 2012 championship, Sebastian had felt that Mark hadn't played team with him in that championship and had compromised him on the rundown to turn one, which resulted in him getting turned around and hit by Bruno Senna. And, you know, after a phenomenal comeback drive, he managed to win the world championship. But that was stuck in his mind and I think we all felt you know Mark might could have done a bit more on that day I think Mark today probably a minute but you know his his emotions were running were running high but you know that's drivers and so it was almost inevitable what was going to happen whatever we'd have said to those drivers so multi 21 was a valiant effort to say right stay where you are car two ahead of car one um, but Seb armed with a brand new set of tyres and with uh, Brazil 2012 still clearly at the back of his head, there was no way he was not going to go for and it. And you knew on the pit wall what was going on. Absolutely. 100% yeah. knew what was going on. And do you know what? It's funny because as time has passed, those two guys that probably hated each other at the time, they're actually good mates now. And um, it's amazing what time and perspective you know, gives. But when you're in the heat of the moment and they're competing and they've got so much at stake, you can understand how you end up in the position where there was no way Sebastian was going to sit behind and just follow his teammate home. Turkey 2010. God, you're rolling them off now, aren't you? I thought you were going to drive a number three. We're getting to number three. Turkey 2010. Turkey 2010. Weber's left the door wide open. Oh, oh did it come no. together? Weber and Vettel have come together. That's Vettel going out. Weber going out. What was going on there? I don't have ever seen such an emotional reaction to from Adrian Newey. Absolutely appalled there. Likewise, Christian Horner. I wanted to ask you about that from a management point of view. You're only five years into the gig at yeah, that yeah. point. We just started winning. And you just started winning, exactly. Just won Monaco, one, two, the two yeah. weeks earlier, biggest race you can win. How hard was that for you? That was tough, but, you know, it's all part of a experience, isn't it? And I think that, you know, we were on a roll, we were winning. Yeah, I think you look back at it, again, circumstances, Sebastian, you know, with hindsight, was too greedy and trying to move Mark over too quickly. He got, he'd made the pass. He didn't need to then bully him onto the other side of the circuit. So, um you know, and you can't blame Mark for not yielding at that point in time, but it put a pressure on the team that really followed through all the way to that 2012 discussion that we've just had. Are these 
moments, shall we call them that, or incidents between Vettel and Weber, are they one of the reasons you pushed so hard to introduce young guys from the programme? Well, I think it's always been a philosophy of Red Bull is to bring and back young talent, not just with drivers. You know, it happened with me. I wouldn't have had the chance if Dietrich had said, we'll give you a chance out of what was Formula 3000 now would it be Formula 2. And so, and I think the young driver program you know, ha- has been a huge success. It's brought more drivers into Formula 1 than any other program. And it's harsh, but it delivers. And quite a few drivers owe their careers to you know, Red Bull giving them the chance. Sorry, driver number three. Driver number three has to be Max Verstappen. At 18 years and 227 days old, He has again brought a dynamic into the team, particularly now with the experience that he has at the ripe old age of 23, that he's performing at a phenomenal level and has been for the last two or three seasons now. And I think that he deserves a car that finally we're now being able to provide him, you know, car and engine to go and challenge the Mercedes. And um, I think he's... He's relishing that. How much has he evolved on and off track in the time you've known him? A huge amount. I mean, remember, he was only, what, 17 when he joined us. Yeah. So the difference between 17 and 23 is a big percentage of a young person's life. And I think the maturity, the experience that he has now, he's got his feet on the, on the ground. He's just a, a no bullshit racer. That's all he cares about. That's all he wants to do. And uh, you know when you put him in the car he's going to give you 110%. That's what makes him, I think, so exciting to watch that you just know Imola this year, starting P3 on the grid, he's not going to be there at the first corner. It's lights out and away we go. Verstappen gets an excellent reaction. Verstappen and Hamilton wheel-to-wheel going into the temporary chicane. Hamilton is forced wide and he's lost a little bit of bodywork as well. Verstappen leads the Emilia-Romagna Grand Prix. Uh, that that kind of thing you just you just know you're going to get 110 percent from him is he better able to play the percentage game now yeah i think so i think he but with that level of maturity i think he's demonstrated that you know certainly in 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 some of the races this year when i look back to 2016 and that barcelona grand prix he was so young yeah what were you thinking? Oh, no, we all knew he was good. We were thinking, how the hell did he do that? Because we thought we'd put Daniel on the better strategy <laughs> yes. and Max managed to convert a one-stop or whatever yes. it was at the time into a, into a win. I'm thinking, how did he make the it tires was, last? I mean, how, did he just do that? And I remember it was the most surreal thing. He'd never even sat in the car before yeah. the weekend. You know, he just chucks him straight in and he, he, he boom, first victory. It was mental, wasn't it? Fairy tale stuff. And how much of a risk were you taking putting him in the car in the first place? It was a calculated risk because obviously there were options coming up within his contract. And uh, Daniel at the time, uh, Daniel uh, Kvyat was, uh, you know, he was struggling a bit. And you know, Red Bull's in the privileged position where it has two teams. And so therefore to make that switch served two purposes. And Helmut got a lot of flack at the time for that. But yeah, it was the right thing to do. It was the right thing to do. And it secured you know, Max for the long term that we could then start to build with. And with Max and Daniel, we had, you know, three more years, 16, 17, 18 of a fantastic combination with those two drivers. Yeah. You mentioned Daniel. 
We talked about him at the top of the show. Do you think he's regretted leaving? Uh, You'd have to ask him that. Do you, you, think he, you, do you think he's regretted? Have you ever asked him that? Not outright. I mean, when he announced he was leaving Renault, he gave me a call in the shutdown last year. And he's, I remember him saying, you're probably thinking, I told you so. And yeah, you did. <laughs> um, but you, you know, that was a decision that he felt he needed to make at that time and um you know he's still a great friend of the team he's a great driver i'm sad to see him having the struggles that he's having at the moment but i'm sure he'll he'll come through them quick word on checo if we could what does he give you that pierre and alex didn't i think he just gives us that experience you know he's got 10 years worth of experience he's got an ability to manage tires within a race that is second to none and it just brings a different dynamic, you know, into the lineup. Both Pierre and, and Alex are tremendously gifted drivers, but timing just wasn't right. And in the pressured environment that, that we have and the expectation, it, it, was, it was very tough for them. And I think that, you know, it was a bold move to step out of the scheme this year with Checo. But for the first time since Mark Webber, we've taken a non-Red Bull Junior driver. But the way he's settled in, the way he's delivering particularly after that victory in Bahrain last year, would have been very tough for him not to be in Formula One. And I think he brings a dynamic in the fight that we have with Mercedes, you know, that's starting to pay dividends. You saw that in the French Grand Prix and also Azerbaijan getting his first victory before the way he, he fended off Lewis. Lewis would have probably, you know, won that race had it not been for Checo. So he's, he's absolutely delivering. Are you continuing to commit resources to 2021 or where are you back at the factory in terms of where's the focus? You're not going to let this one slip, are you? You know, I read with interest all these people say, yeah, we've turned off 2021 and we're we're a race team. You know, 2022, they all count. All the years count. And you're as good as your last race in this business. So, you know, of course we continue to put effort in and push and if that means working a few more hours and drinking a few more Red Bulls, everybody's pretty motivated at this point in time. So, uh, you know, the pain is worth the gain. Would you sacrifice 2022 to get this one across the line? No, because the expectation in this business is that you've got to deliver. But we've got to deliver this year and then we've got to deliver next year. So you've got to balance your resources accordingly. But we're a race team and you... you roll with the circumstances that you have if you need to improve the car you've got to improve it you can't say yeah well we'll leave that till next year you're punchy i can see you've got lots of energy yeah you're, loving I, it, aren't I, you? you're yeah, absolutely uh, loving it. absolutely and i think that it's a great place for the team to be in and yeah. we've worked hard i think we're massively excited about the future yeah. you know the whole powertrain story how that's going to unfold and um future's bright if you win the world championship we need to think of a, not a forfeit, that would be the wrong thing, wouldn't it? But Christine, you know how like you jumped in the pool at Monaco? Yeah, you can forget that. <laughs> you can absolutely forget that. I tell you what, you could do something, mate. <laughs> what could you do? I'd like to see you. I don't know. What, we could, well, think. Maybe you can get the listeners to you know, write in and what would Tom Clarkson, what would you have him do if Red Bull were to win the world championship? Christine, thanks so much for your time. It's great. It's lovely to hear you. I was going to say talking bull. 
but that's something <laughs> no else, we only do it? that on our podcast <laughs> not on yours i'm very polite on yours on our podcast it's you know we give we give all the details but i've been very polite on yours but it's been lovely talking to you yeah, i'm to sorry see. it's not been ex- as exciting as the last time we were together yeah um, it's great but, to see uh, it's great to see you guys good so to well. catch up It was fantastic to hear from Christian, wasn't it? He pulls no punches and he leaves us in no doubt about his and the team's motivation. Even with the change in regulations coming in 2022, he wants to win this year and next year. And why not? As he says, that's the job of a front-running Formula One team. It's inspiring stuff. And the conversation was littered with fascinating insights. The fact that Adrian Newey is as motivated now as ever he has been. The soft landing that the team is going to get with Honda next year while they continue to set up Red Bull powertrains. Even the prospect of a Red Bull powered road car for the future. And I loved Christian's description of Max Verstappen as a no bullshit racer. And go on then, come up with some ideas. If Red Bull win the world championship this year, what should I do? And for reference, the only thing I'm not good at are heights. Christian, many thanks for your time. It was great to chat and good luck for the remainder of the season. And before we move on, please send in any stories or thoughts that you have on Christian. We didn't do this bit after he first appeared on the show three years ago. So don't hold back. Did you see him race in Formula Renault, Formula 3 or Formula 3000? Have you bumped into him anywhere since? Let me know. And remember, I'll read out the best ones next week. So send them to me at Tom Clarkson F1 or use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. Which brings me on to what you sent in about Jacques Lafitte after last week's show. Like so many of the sport's golden oldies, there's a lot of love for Jacques out there. He was a brilliant character and a very fast racing driver. Abinav got in touch with this message. Such an exciting F1 Beyond the Grid podcast with Jacques, he says. As a 90s kid, it's wonderful to hear anecdotes from the earlier decades of Formula One. I love Jacques mentioning Kimi as his contemporary on the current grid. I can easily imagine Kimi rocking PJs in the paddock. Ha! Well, thanks for getting in touch, Abinav. Yes, Kimi could rock the PJs, but so could Lewis. In fact, Lewis does it at most races, doesn't he? Ludovic had this to say, great chat again. This guy was driving and survived in one of the most interesting eras of Formula One. He had a ton of fun and remained competitive and fast till the end of his career. What more can you ask for from life? And he's still sharp at 77. Yes to all of the above, Ludovic. Jacques was a great asset to the sport then, and he remains one today. And what about this from Graham? Great interview with Jacques, he says. One of F1's true characters. His winning the first two races of 1979 in the beautiful Ligier JS11 as teams ran their ground effect responses to the Lotus 79 for the first time is a strong memory from my days of being an F1 obsessed kid. Well, wasn't the Ligier JS11 one of the most beautiful cars ever seen in Formula One, Graham? I loved it. And it was driven by one of the coolest drivers in the sports history as well, wasn't it? And we'll end with this from Master. Besides being a great driver, often overlooked, Jacques' Montreal 81 masterpiece must be more recognized when we debate the greatest performance in wet conditions. Maybe his commitment wasn't enough, yes, but his more relaxed approach was part of the character that F1 loved. Well, thanks for the note, Master. And yes, Montreal 81 was a brilliant win by Jacques. And from 10th on the grid as well, it was great stuff. 
Well, we'll have to leave it there. And I'm sorry if I haven't read out your message. Thank you to everyone who sent them in. And I've read them all and I love them. Well, that's it for another week. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Christian and remember to send in your thoughts and stories on him. As ever, I'll be back next week with another great guest from the world of Formula One. So see you then. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audio Boom. Until next time, keep it flat out.